Well, we have a bit of t- to talk about tonight on this Wednesday night edition of the pod. Four games, but obviously we have to talk about those two classics in OKC and in Cleveland. We'll get to some of Raps Wiz as well. Probably going to barely discuss Houston and Minnesota. We didn't watch that much of that game. That largely went according to form. I'll leave it up to you, Danny. Which one of these two crazy games do you want to start with? I think we have to start with OKC against Utah. And I think it's a good place to start with this game to instead of starting with the comeback start with what led to what 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 preceded the comeback and that was a game that would have been a somewhat remarkable conclusion for Oklahoma City season because it encapsulated so many of the frustrations that the two of us in particular have had about the Thunder in this series because they didn't fix anything they were getting tough shots they were taking tough shots and And on the other end, Utah was just unloading open threes on them, starting from the middle of the second quarter and basically not letting up until everything. It was even earlier than that. I mean, you remember when we switched over to it, it was like, you know, eight to seven or something. And then the Jazz went absolutely crazy and put up 34 first quarter points. I think it was five consecutive threes from the combination of Ingles and Crowder, four of which were just wide open shots. And again, it was this crazy OKC strategy of bringing Stephen Adams 25 feet from the basket to a lot of times it was Ricky Rubio sometimes it was Mitchell I don't think either of them was defensible by this point of the series to be defending that way but certainly not with Rubio and the Jazz that left then the backside defender on the pick and roll just completely in no man's land between the roll man and Gobert is a, a solid roll man so his favors or just the, the backside corner three-point shooter and the Jazz have excellent backside corner three-point shooters especially when it's Joe Ingles who is right up by it might have even led the nba in three-point shooting this season and so they just got lit up and it was only a flurry from paul george once westbrook had checked out of the game uh that kept them that close he hit a number of difficult contested shots in the end of the first quarter so the jazz led at 34 29 then the jazz defense really went to work because they gave up more threes uh and okc really struggled offensively in the second quarter ended that quarter with a mere 12 points they lost that 22 12 it's 15 at halftime and then the jazz with just more threes i mean this one was even more asinine it just pick and pop crowder three-pointer wide open at the top of the key as they double team ricky rubio it was just so incredibly annoying and then okc got absolutely nothing on the offensive glass steven adams again had only one offensive rebound in this game uh and they weren't getting anything in transition they only had five fast break points at halftime and so utah took a 25 point lead in this game and then rudy gobert got his fourth foul yeah and that really does appear to be the inflection point of this game because it because when Gobert got his fourth foul it was pretty much set that even if he played in that third quarter it was going to be very limited that ended up being very important later on and OKC with the knowledge that he was going to be out there were two big things that happened one was their players most notably Russell Westbrook and Paul George were emboldened to attack more zealously than they have in the career (laughs) sorry in this series but also in the last like two three years for Paul George and whether you want to tie that in with Gobert and you know the feedback loop the idea that they weren't getting as many looks in transition Utah's offense went ice cold as well and those were both incredibly important parts well it started with two Westbrook three-pointers and he was five of nine from three he played the entire second half had only done that once before in his career which was game seven in Golden State in the series they lost in 2016 
16 45.7 assists 15 rebounds but it was really those two three-pointers to get the lead right back from 25 to under 20 and then jeremy grant checked in for carmelo anthony and i give much more of the credit to okc's defense once again they were that unit that flew around that we remember from that game that Melo missed in oakland among other times this season and they started switching everything with adams who could do that the jazz could not get anything going all of a sudden they're not a very good one-on-one team they tried a little bit of that strategy back in i want to say game two and i thought they had okay success with it favors got a couple of post-ups but uh gobert was out of the game favors generally had a a tougher matchup and they had the length to deal with everything as well and so now utah is trying to go one-on-one every time ricky rubio took some horrible shots you got jay crowder playing to his worst instincts even though he had uh, hit a jazz record six three-pointers he took some bad ones on the end it some uh, somehow got 27 points though because he he made up for many of the missed shots that he had missed this season in both cleveland and utah and that to me it was all about the defense i know westbrook was unbelievable george was unbelievable they both played the whole second half 45 and 44 minutes but to me it was all about the thunder going to a smarter defensive scheme with better defensive personnel that definitely was central in in what they did and so by the rough count that i did during that nine minutes and 23 seconds and gobert ended up playing a little bit in this we'll get to that in a second utah had 20 trips down the floor offensively they were four of 16 from the field they grabbed two offensive rebounds they were two of nine from three and they had four possessions that ended in a turnover two of which were steals so four makes four turnovers and four free throws during that time is just the the rest incredible the the rest of the quarter or yeah that's just the 920 that the 920 in at the end of the third because by the point the third quarter ended oklahoma city had already come all the way back the comeback occurred in the third quarter they went down 25 and then came back all within that third quarter and then the fourth quarter became this slugfest yeah it was 71 46 was the jazz biggest lead and at that point we actually switched away from the game we switched back after westbrook hit, hit a couple of threes in a row and it started to get back towards 15 uh but I mean, you, you, I didn't want to count them out, but you felt like this was over and the postmortems were being written on this OKC season. And then in the fourth quarter, you mentioned the slugfest. Yeah. Well, before oh, we yeah, get to ahead. the fourth quarter, there's one other oh, massive, the, the massive thing that foul. happened in this. Right. So Quinn Snyder, you know, th- it's unraveling. He goes back to Gobert with four fouls. And it was crazy how this happened because Gobert comes back in and he's being pretty judicious about not committing the foul himself. Yeah, and by the way, we should you know, mention not, not being... that his fourth foul, there was like literally zero contact on Anthony. And they didn't That's really true. show a great replay of it. Maybe they must have thought that he like swiped down, but he was like a good foot away from Carmelo. Uh, and that was, you know, basically Carmelo's sole contribution in the game was he actually put two fouls <laughs> on Gobert in the third quarter. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so so, the, so then Gobert comes back in, he actually gets to the line and gets to the line at one point, And then he grabs an, an offensive rebound off a of Royce O'Neal miss and for reasons that I'm not sure I'll, I'll ever be able to process. He's backing backing on Alex Abrinas, of all people, and just wraps his left arm around Abrinas as he's trying to get into a shot. Easy call for the referee to make. I mean, Gobert's arms are huge. It goes all the way around Abrinas' body, basically. And easy fifth foul, that happens with 3.46 to go, because so they brought him back in at about the five-minute mark. And then he has five fouls, and then, then it gets into a much more complicated scenario with Quinn Snyder, because he can't go back to 
him as quickly because it's only one foul until Gobert is gone. Yeah, and it's interesting with the big lead. You think, okay, we'll, we'll be conservative here. And I'm not saying I'm advocating this, but it's just an interesting thought. Is we're up 25. If you don't take Gobert out with the four fouls, you could say, well, you know, if we if they come back, we need him to stanch the bleeding. But maybe the bleeding never happens to begin with if you keep him in there. Now, I think almost every coach in the world with 25 point lead probably would have taken him out. That gone with the conservative play there. But it is interesting to, to think about that. Um, yeah. Then the fourth quarter, the switching still occurred. They went back to Anthony, which was a surprise it, rather than Grant. Uh, I thought that that was quite foolish. And in fact, Anthony did get beaten a few times uh, by Mitchell in particular. But and Mitchell was really the only one who could do anything on a switch. And the Jazz really weren't doing much to set screens, then roll to the rim, try to get guys on their back. You know, they hadn't really been executing against a switching system during this playoff series. And, and you imagine that we're going to see more of that from OKC going forward. In fact, you would have to say, given how awful their defense was, that it is probably extremely foolish for Donovan not to have tried something else before this, when you see the results they're trying to get with just even a slightly, you know, with any kind of more conservative scheme against this Utah team. And so it was really, I mean, the defense is what drove it. They did get out in transition. George was going to the rim. You mentioned that. I mean, he was just like going through Gobert, who didn't want to pick up fouls, going through favors. I mean, he wasn't like blowing by guys, but he was just finishing with such strength, knocking guys out of the way at the rim. And we really had not seen that from him in quite some time. His inability to get to the rim this series had been a big problem for them. He also had another one of his signature snake the pick and roll and step back for a three that helped to ice the game in the fourth quarter. And and Utah just couldn't figure out a way to score. You know, Favors, he was also in foul trouble. They didn't finish with the Favors and Gobert combo, which I really thought they should have, although the game was probably pretty much out of reach by that point when it would have made sense to bring them both back with the five fouls. Uh, that was their best lineup. They couldn't stop Thunder, so maybe you would have thought that you'd go with your better defensive lineup. But Crowder had been hot, so maybe they felt like they had to leave him out there. I, maybe they even could have just gone away from Rubio and, and gone with Ingles, Crowder, and Mitchell on the perimeter with Favors and Gobert. I thought that Rubio took some really, really weird, questionable floating two-pointers that just there's no explanation for pretty early in the clock. As well, Royce O'Neal didn't give them anything as well. That Dante Exum only played two minutes. He might have actually even been able to help them a little bit. And so I thought OKC, even when they had Melo out there, even when they had Abrinas out there, those guys got attacked a little bit, but it still just wasn't enough for this Utah team that has one one-on-one creator, essentially. And Russell Westbrook, we did mention that him attacking the rim was certainly opened up a little bit, but he did most of his damage with the jump shot. So just in the stretch of time, so that starting at that 920 mark, but running through the entire rest of the game, not just the third quarter, Westbrook had 33 points and he had four free throws. So that's actually fewer maybe than you would expect given that. Three of five in the restricted area, one of four from flood range. So still had some struggles there. Three of four on mid-rangers and five of seven on threes so the jump shot that had been not falling for a vast majority of this series and we said was going to be the the kind of the central question in this series that was really what helped spring okc and of course paul george also had 21 points of his own so you can't do it without either one of those guys but russell westbrook hit every single shot that he had to down the stretch and you can maybe question utah for not doing more to get it out of the hands of westbrook and george considering that those 
two combined for 79 of their 107 points and mm-hmm. you know probably 80 percent of their points in the second half you can definitely question that but you know utah they didn't want to overreact to that and, and i think in the next game they're not going to want to overreact either I mean, their strategy was russell westbrook you want to be us for mid-range go ahead but that mid-range jumper that's open most of the time especially with gobert again a little gun shy with the foul trouble and same with favors and by the way favors fifth foul was awful too like he just went straight up i, I had no idea how that would, could possibly have been a foul but those mid-range jumpers feel a lot better when you're actually stopping them at the other end that can become a better shot if you're trying to outscore a team when you're giving up 120 points per 100 possessions and wide open corner threes all the time then that jumper looks a lot worse right and they got back to the formula that worked for them last year it was funny danny well westbrook was really struggling in this game we got asked during the tour nba show of what's so different about russell westbrook this year and i thought that one of the things really was his mentality was a little bit different and that he almost could be more effective playing the way he did last year a thousand miles an hour shooting without a conscience and i think he maybe had too much of a conscience he wasn't taking the open mid-range he was trying to make passes that just weren't really there or driving into traffic and feeling like he was taking you know trying to avoid taking bad shots and uh didn't he had really largely abandoned the three-pointer about halfway through the season was he wasn't shooting it well but you know when he really goes off especially in this comeback mode you don't remember too last year he led a ton of these comebacks where he was just like shooting every time right that was part of why we had him for mvp and i think that especially in this series he's got to just be russ and play with abandon and sometimes it's going to look really really ugly but other times he's just going to keep going and be too relentless and eventually the defense is going to crack and i think hitting those two three pointers which was kind of like which he hadn't really been shooting when he's just like all right screw it i'm going to start taking these i think that was a really important step for him it certainly appears that it was that way and there were a couple other important elements of this comeback and everything else that i wanted to mention so westbrook and and paul george didn't sit during that whole time that's been talked about you know as you mentioned only the second time russell westbrook has played the entire second half stephen adams only sat for a minute and a half and i thought he was very important for this as well just because he gave them this added degree of rim protection and even though he only scored two points he can help create space for other guys as well Yeah, he was an excellent screener he was doing a great job of like engaging with the big under the rim preventing help on some of those drives running the floor he was very solid i mean it's pretty amazing the thunder had 13 assists on 39 made field goals and that's a 33 percent ratio there that's about as low as i can ever remember seeing I mean, usually the league worst team in terms of percentage of assisted baskets is that like 50 percent for the season but you know it was just george it was westbrook creating everything and the jazz had no answers anything else you wanted to add it here before we kind of talk about what this is going to mean for game six a couple other things so you mentioned the assist ratio it was also eight of 23 during the comeback and the end of the game so it, it was true before the comeback it was true after that they were they were running in that way and then the other guy i want to talk about we said some about the difference between jeremy grant and Carmelo. Alex Abrinas is not a perfect defender. He has he has flaws. There were times when the Jazz went after him a little bit, including with Donovan Mitchell late, but he plays with energy and he's willing to body guys up. And I thought he was a major difference maker and that playing him over Corey Brewer for a lot of that stretch, though they did go to Corey Brewer late, sort of similarly to how they went to Melo late, it helped them on both ends of the floor because offensively you have to guard Alex Abrinas. He can hit, he can hit open shots. Everybody knows that that's why 
he is in the NBA. But he worked as a defender pretty well, shockingly well to a point, in what Oklahoma City was trying to do. Yeah, he actually had two steals and a block, and he got beaten a couple of times by Mitchell, but Abrias' problem isn't his quickness necessarily, and he can also at least like pressure up and give some effort. It's that is his lack of strength, and Utah doesn't really have the wing player off the dribble who's going to take advantage of that. I thought Mitchell had some fabulous finishes in the lane. I mean, that one lefty floater after someone dug down and probably fouled him, there was no call, and he floater off the, the left foot, and he was outstanding getting to the rim, but he just can't couldn't get to the rim every time, and the jumper wasn't falling. He was only one out of seven on threes. Many of those were very difficult attempts, and but you know he still was their best option rather than Ricky Rubio. And so you you know that Snyder, if he thinks they're going to be switching, he's going to dial up some stuff that's a little most little more systematized for them to deal with that switching defense. But it, it was weird to see the Jazz just have to go to mismatch basketball in this one. And we we probably didn't talk enough about what Grant did uh, when he came in. I mean the blocks, both he and George Abrinas, all of them were just getting so many deflections when they're trying to throw the ball to the weak side they they would make it much more difficult there was more pressure there's just that little bit smaller window to finish at the rim and, and Oklahoma City looked like Oklahoma City again and just that that level of franticness Grant was only two out of two he had a, a big dunk on a pick and roll I can't remember what his other bucket was but again he was a, a, and they only went with Felton for four minutes Patterson they brought in briefly I still thought it was lunacy to go back to Carmelo and he it's not like he gave them anything at the end there but you know Donovan I guess still in spite of all evidence believes that Carmelo has to be back in the game maybe it's still just politics although you know you would think that when Grant fueled their entire comeback that would at least be enough uh to take him Carmelo out and put Grant back in but you know Melo was good enough that he didn't get killed and they were able to outscore him 29-21 in the fourth quarter well and that ties in with where you wanted to go before we started talking about Abrinas and Jeremy Grant which is what do you take from this moving forward and my biggest question is what does Billy Donovan take from this moving forward because it took until the second half of an elimination game when they were down 25 for OKC to try yeah. anything you, different you know what it reminded and, me and of actually worked. you remember how in that series with the Spurs against OKC in 2016 it took until the Spurs were down 25 in game six in the second half for him to try Kawhi Leonard at the four when they'd been killing yeah. him with Cantor and Adams together the whole series you know that's kind of what it's like we've been calling for it all series that's kind of what it seemed like here we've been calling for them to change the pick and roll coverage all series they finally do and hey all it works but it just happened to be enough with the combination of these incredible Westbrook and George performances and the Gobert foul trouble so yeah I, I think it is you know what is it what is he going to take but, from this getting back to your point there right because you could say there will be a, a way to go oh my god well how how can you possibly turn your back on on what made this team successful you know beyond Russell Westbrook and Paul George going insane partially because of Rudy Gobert being out the attacking defense with Abrinas and with Jeremy Grant but you look at the way Billy Donovan chose to end this game and this was not garbage time you know late that he went to these guys when the outcome was still in doubt going back to Corey Brewer going back to Carmelo Anthony and my instinct is that Billy Donovan is going to start game six that same way he's going to start with his guys and if it falls back to it maybe he will turn turn to that lineup but it's going to be a different circumstance Utah is going to be at home that crowd is going to be in a very different mental state than most we've seen because it's this weird mix of hey it's a closeout game at home this would be a massive series win for the Jazz with we just saw what was a crushing defeat in a very limited window but if that window expands then you start to think of this not as much like an example you brought up in the Twitter show of the Warriors blowing a lead in a close 
closeout game in Dallas in the We Believe year and starting to look more like OKC blowing game six in the 2016 Western Conference Finals. And those two things are very different, but the line between them can be faint. Yeah, and really to me, a lot of what they did is not sustainable. Like George, Westbrook combining for 79 points. That's very, very unlikely to happen in the next game. Like the the math that Utah has generally forced in this series has worked. OKC's offense has looked really bad. Gobert has been dominant. Now he could get into foul trouble again, but he doesn't start game six in foul trouble. Uh, And so just George, Westbrook playing this number of minutes. Certainly they were fueled by the crowd in OKC, which actually started booing when they uh, had gotten down 25, uh, according to Royce Young. Very unlikely that those guys play the same way again, and especially with Rudy Gobert out there and not hampered by foul trouble, if in fact that, that is the case. The thing that they can replicate to me is the defense, whether it's switching, whether it's being a little more conservative with their center placement. And so you said, oh, is Donovan going to start with his guys? My even bigger question is, is Donovan going to start by switching? Are they going to sit, put that in their back pocket and try it later? Are they going to just go with a more conservative scheme with Adams? Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to say, oh, they'll be ready for the switching, so we're not going to do it. We'll go back to our regular scheme, which they have proven time and time again. They are unable to execute against this Utah Jazz team. That, that'll that be really, really interesting to me. Uh, can the Thunder maintain their composure? They actually did maintain their composure in this game, despite getting completely blown out. Uh, they found that far more difficult to do in Utah. Like That's, that's the question for me. And if this OKC team can stop Utah, I don't think they're going to score as well as they did here you know they're not going to go nine of 21 from three i don't think with russ going going five of nine but the question is if okc can defend as well as they did in this game then they can turn this into a rock fight and it could be anyone's game at the end if they go back to the same old guys that they had been or snyder maybe can find a counter to the switching then you know because utah has clearly been the better team for nearly the entire series it's taken superlative individual efforts from george and westbrook to even get them the two wins that they have and this sets up my absolute favorite scenario in the playoffs and this was the case even before that classic golden state game six in oklahoma city which is favorite down three two heading to the other team's gym for a game six both teams really desperate uh the favorite can still salvage it get back home for a game seven really proving your medal or the upstart underdog can just end the series and uh i just love game sixes three two to the road team this is my favorite i can't wait for this game it's going to be fantastic and i mean we already saw some of the post-mortem stuff with Oklahoma City and those stories are basically the same if they lose game six in terms of what happens with Paul George and everything else we don't know if that's going to happen obviously that's what makes this game so much fun and there are plenty of stakes involved in this game either way just like there were massive stakes in what we thought for 90% of this night was going to be the story of the day the game of the day Cleveland overcoming Oklahoma Oklahoma City. Indiana. Oh my god, how did I get that wrong? That's all right. We, we've <laughs> it's been a long talking night. for like eight hours total today, so you, you're allowed to make yeah. that mistake. We don't do edits on this uh, pod. I had such a beautiful narrative flow going, too. I know. I, I, this is one of our better transitions, which we usually kind of fail at. And Indiana had a nice halftime lead of seven points, 56-47. They really were hurting the Cavaliers, who had resorted to switching a lot. They did not go with the double teams of Victor Oladipo early. And Indiana did a great job of attacking those switches. They had Oladipo working off the ball more. Their bigs were getting great seals. Lance Stevenson threw some fantastic entry passes to those guys. And Indiana looked to be in relative control, especially with the way that they had dominated in the second half.
half and then it was a 32 to 17 third quarter from Cleveland and LeBron just through three quarters was absolutely unbelievable he was nine of 11 at halftime and was shooting basically every shot in the paint or getting fouled through three quarters he was over 30 points again he was just absolutely dominating Boyan Bogdanovich they had the shooting around him when they didn't have the shooting around him Indiana was still totally unable to get any kind of help at the rim from Turner from Young from Sabonis on LeBron I mean it was just a relentless performance by LeBron he also was 15 of 15 from the foul line he had eight of Cleveland's 16 assists in this game as well did end up with with five turnovers I thought that even at times in the first half he was providing some decent rim protection and yet as they have in this series the Pacers just kept coming you you felt like with Cleveland up by 10 for end of the third beginning of the fourth they'd be all right it wasn't even when LeBron went out of the game they only lost two points during that it went from six to four at that point but then Cleveland totally stopped scoring only 17 points in the fourth quarter and they got right back into it I thought with some weird tactics by Cleveland defensively yeah again one of the questions that can persist in a playoff kind of idea is what are you trying to gain from what you're doing and I had some of those questions with Cleveland's approach especially in that fourth quarter and Victor Oladipo was two of 14 and yet they decided all of a sudden to go back to this trapping defense that Indiana had largely solved I thought and why they felt like they had to double team a guy who was two out of 14 down the end of the game I really don't know but and we'll get to we'll do possession by possession down the end but it seemed like they were really opening up a lot of plays could have been even worse for the Cavs I thought another thing that really changed things was after LeBron finally started just completely abusing Bogdanovich off the dribble from the top they just going right to the rim they went with Thaddeus Young on LeBron and obviously no one is going to shut down LeBron but Young at least has enough strength that he was able to just prevent himself from completely getting trucked and it happened at that time that LeBron started getting a little bit more tired he only went five out of 13 from the field in the second half got more of his turnovers in the second half as well so I thought that was a key adjustment from McMillan who you know because Young has always been the best matchup but they felt like oh we want to have someone who can guard love who can switch a pick and roll with love but love again pretty limited two out of 11 in this game his post outs were not very good he did get to the foul line for on two really bad calls in the first half by the way um but he was has not been the post threat in this series and i think they felt like they're okay putting young onto lebron i mean when you're getting trucked that badly at the rim pretty much anything would be better than that and we that's kind of what we were saying at the time was you know someone's got to come in and help at the rim even if cleveland is going to get some open threes and again i mean cleveland did not hit their threes they're only 31 percent. so i don't know anything else you want to say about the meat of this game before we talk about the very end yeah a couple of things one lebron shot chart in the beginning of this game you talked about it a little bit but i want to i want to mention this more clearly because it's so completely insane in the first half lebron was nine for 11 from the field 10 of those 11 shots were in the restricted area the only one that was not was a a 10 foot banker which didn't go in and he also got he only got to the line twice but also using that threat was able to create a lot of the looks for teammates and early on it was another story like we've seen so much in this series where LeBron is creating great looks for capable teammates not just for the dregs or anything like that and they're not converting J.R. Smith missed all three of his threes in the first half Calderon missed an open one yes, Smith, Hood missed an Smith, open by one the way, 33 minutes zero points 0 for 8 0 of 6 from three mm-hmm. and really the 
the only guy who was who was hitting shots even in that first half and it, that largely held in the third quarter outside of LeBron was Kyle Korver. Korver was converting those opportunities. I think he had four threes in the first three quarters and then Calderon eventually joined him in the third quarter as well. And remember Kyle Korver only played four minutes, I guess because he still was coming back from that foot injury in game one. And how screwed would they be without him right now in this series? He's their second best player. Kyle Korver is their second best player on this team right now. Yeah, and again, in this game, Cleveland did not get much from all of the players they acquired in the trade. George Hill, again, did not play. Calderon started in his yeah. place. And by the way, Nance, by the way, we said it at the time of the trade that maybe investing in George Hill, who you know really has not been able to stay healthy three of the last four years, might not be great at playoff time. You might have some nagging injury. And as it turned out, that was the case. Yep. And, and the inconsistency, basically all the reasons that Utah Jazz fans were not super depressed when Rodney Hood got traded, a lot of that stuff has come to pass in this series as well. He finished the game with 21 minutes, one for four from the field, missed his only three. And I think with, with Hood, you've used the, the phrase, and I, I really like this with him and with a couple other players, that he doesn't play with force defensively. Rodney Hood is six foot eight, but if you watch the way he defends, you would never know it. Yeah, I mean, they had Corver out there late for defense rather than Rodney Hood, you know, on a defense-only possession. That's uh, that's not, not the Great, greatest. they also had Jeff Green out there for an offense-only possession, so there are some questions here, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, that is true. Well, let's talk about the end of the game here. I'm sure this will get us to a few of our, a few more of our themes coming. Yeah, yeah, I'm realizing now I haven't talked about my big theme yet for the Pacers from this entire game. So I think we'll get to it in this. Though. Yeah, coming down the stretch, they had a couple of passes, one to Young, one to Sabonis that just it didn't work. And then I, I thought one thing that really stood out to me late was the Pacers having chances to push and transition, especially Oladipo and just not doing it. Um, Oladipo, yeah. And that's exactly, sorry, that's exactly what my, what my main point was. And you're right to bring it up in the fourth quarter, but it was true the entire way. In the first quarter, there were times when Victor Oladipo looked like he had a seam, or Darren Collison. I think Collison, in some ways, yeah. was Collison was turning almost down as big so an offender. Many shot too from three. I mean, the guy's a forty percent three point shooter. Shoot the ball. Yeah, turning down shots, turning down drives, and Cleveland. A, their transition defense is abysmal, but also even in just normal situations, other than LeBron, they don't really have much in the way of help defense. Their centers are Kevin Love and Larry Nance, not exactly a, a buffet of rim protectors in any in any way, shape, or form. And Indiana, maybe they were worried about fatigue with their guys. They did end up having a lot of players who went deep into the minutes. I mean, Oladipo at 40, Bogdanovich at 33, Sabonis, who played well at 33. But they needed, you need every point you can get against Cleveland because you know that they're going to score especially if it's close late well and also remember cleveland's transition defense was one of the worst in the nba here right and, and the, the pace of this game was incredibly slow it was like 89 possessions so and maybe oladipo was too tired to push the ball uh but Corey joseph only played 27 minutes he could have done it some lance likes to push the ball but you know and they did have 14 fast break points in this game but i i thought especially late and pushing and transition late can be such a weapon teams are just not prepared for it they're tired but in any event this is when they started the double teaming we'll we'll pick it up at 95 91 just over two minutes left old depot gets a long rebound in front of calderon after calderon missed a three and he just had a chance that he was his momentum was already going down court and he just slowed it up um but then they just double team he and sabonis totally predictable old depot throws this left-handed pass to boyan and it could have been a more accurate pass you know old depot he's in his first year really being this initiator and, and he's got to get more passing vision he's got to get more craft you know he's a million miles 
an hour right now and that can be very effective at times but i think just in terms of his skill level as a passer and he's going to get there this year you know this is being a number one option is very difficult in the nba especially in the playoffs and and he's going to learn how to deal with that but still boyan bogdanovich wide open three he makes an unbelievable play knowing that he's off goes and grabs the rebound on the fly and then he found young for an easy layup not much uh hustle from cleveland getting that rebound so that made it 93 92 with two minutes left and lebron got sabonis on a switch sabonis has actually been relatively effective on lebron uh he lebron really went a little bit too slowly i thought uh against that sabonis switch he had to go to a fadeaway in the lane he just didn't quite have enough time to get something in. and again victor oladipo had a chance to push the ball did not you know they were in transition uh but of course then they just double teamed it again they don't get anything though they got back in order joseph had to drive um but indy was able to get another offensive rebound as love was just only able to tip it out of bounds and then they did a smart sub of green coming in for calderon because it was actually green who on the ensuing possession somewhat forced a miss from sabonis although i'm sure he would tell you that that was an easy lefty layup and sabonis was great with 22 points 8 out of 12 despite you know just incredibly <laughs> left uh, left-handed right shoulder finish every time uh even brent berry brought out that stat on the broadcast too which was a great one of, of how he uh, mike savagno had this after we were talking about him being uh, zoolandering that on 96 of 101 possessions in the post he went right shoulder <laughs> this year it's just incredible and we saw thaddeus young finish with his right hand He's on one play improved. sabonis tried it once he it, has it did not go in i mean but if they're not gonna it stop not. me why not just keep doing the same thing over and over again well and it was so it was so funny to see cleveland's ancillary players just not know the scouting report like rodney hood there were a couple times when sabonis was posting him up and he just didn't know what to do yeah, but Jeff then Green other guys too, like if lebron like, guns, like let yeah. sabonis just score and they flashed lebron on the benches when lebron was on the bench and he's just like can't believe that they let him go right shoulder again you know but but uh sabonis missed that layup and then they come back down lebron gets a drive throws it to jeff green in the corner and i think two guys went to green who had hit a three from the top of the key earlier when lebron was out but probably you'd rather have him shooting than kevin love but then they actually managed to contest loves three pretty well also uh and again they had a chance to run on the rebound they didn't but again it was a very soft trap by cleveland they had previously on the on the bogdanovich wide open three had brought corver all the way in off of bogdanovich to take away the role man they didn't do that this time and indiana did a great job of throwing it to joseph on the wing that was oladipo getting off the ball and then they rotated out to joseph at the three-point line leaving sabonis just wide open whoever uh i think love was one of the guys who was guarding sabonis who double teamed the ball up top he kind of jogged back into the play this had been a long period without a stoppage so it might have been tired but he just jogged back into the play and sabonis at the free throw line caught the ball like pumped once and was just shocked he was so wide open it was just a warm-up jumper for him he hits it at the free throw and to tie it with 33.6 remaining and then there was a timeout so teams got a little bit of rest and nate mcmillan correct me if i'm wrong but i believe he left sabonis in did not bring in miles turner part of the reason turner was out was sabonis outplayed him part of the reason also was that turner had five fouls so that kind of yeah. helped they and, and i thought sabonis the just was doing a better job even defensively i agree with you although turner turner actually had decent success switching on to lebron amazingly he might have in the first half he actually might have been their best switch defender onto lebron because boyan was just getting was getting smoked so badly but yeah i think keeping sabonis in was the right move and it looked to me like they were trying to set up a hammer play along the baseline and lebron sweeps around from the left wing all the way uh, along the right lane line to the right baseline and as he winds up to 
throw a pass to the op- the shooter in the opposite corner Thaddeus Young makes a great play he had hounded him the whole way did not get knocked backwards and knocks it out of LeBron's hand and then it bounces back up hits LeBron's hands and goes out of bounds everyone says all right off of LeBron's hands we're going down the other way timeout and then there was never even a review as far as I knew but it was obvious on the replay that Young had actually hit the ball down into the baseline making it out of bounds before it bounces back up and goes off of LeBron's hands and whether they the fact that it was never reviewed is pretty surprising to me it certainly seemed like it was obvious but I think we had this I can't remember which game it was it might have been a Warriors game earlier in the season where there was a big scrum along the sideline and it turned out that the ball had gone out of bounds with like five seconds left but the actual out of bounds call wasn't made until there was three seconds left and so when they reviewed it it turned out that they couldn't review even further back in time to see that it had gone out they could only review the actual incident that was called out of bounds and so perhaps had they looked at it they would have considered it a different incident because the ball was knocked down once and then bounced back up and went out again that they wouldn't have been able to go back and overturn the first time where the ball went out of bounds because that's not when it was called to be out of bounds uh but as far as i know i don't think they ever looked at it and no they didn't maybe because it was late in the game or what but i i don't think anyone they ever did the pool reporter on that and then that set the stage for victor oladipo on the other end and this play was intriguing for a couple of different reasons the biggest one being the Cavs were switching and indiana ended up deciding to attack victor oladipo attacked with lebron on him even though corver was on the floor and see you could question that just on the idea that lebron is a better defender than kyle corver but victor oladipo blew right by lebron yeah and maybe the thought was well we don't and oladipo had had some success on lebron although he got one blocked as well earlier in this game i believe on chase down maybe the thought was well we need to run the time down here there's a two second differential and if we we run the risk if we involve quarter that they double team and then if we started it late we're not gonna have time to ping the ball around or that we'll end up going too early or we might get a turnover and a pick six and let them score you the paramount concern is we don't want a turnover and we want to be able to get the last shot uh, of course they did not get the last shot uh, as it turned out but Oladipo I mean I said it on the broadcast oh they broke LeBron's ankles and it looked like he did but LeBron recovered incredibly well but as it turned out not well enough he committed a goaltend but because again the referees did not call the goaltend usually when it's close you'll see them call it a goaltend and then they can go back and review it but because no goaltend was called they didn't get a chance to do that and J.R. Smith got the rebound with three seconds left and LeBron likened the situation to the Minnesota game earlier that I picked as my game of the year on our awards podcast because LeBron getting a block and then hitting the game-winning shot but here's the difference was Smith got the rebound and actually called timeout immediately without dribbling he didn't repeat his mistake from the Minnesota game and so they brought the ball into the front court and then that set up LeBron's heroics and thanks to the broadcast not really setting the scene and settling in on their camera angle far enough before the inbound to actually see what the hell was going on it took going through replays to actually really get it because sure you saw what what LeBron did but one of my first questions before we saw the replays was why didn't anybody come over to help sort of paralleling the shot you talked about before where Andrew Wiggins didn't come over to help well the difference this time was there wasn't enough time because nobody was close enough because like the ball wasn't in the air as long it was thrown from half court as opposed to or thrown from in the half court rather than being thrown from three quarters and so LeBron caught it and there were some I saw on Twitter questioning why Indiana didn't foul because they apparently had a foul to give the answer is because when it's only three seconds it's way too close to, you you don't want the the ref to call a shooting foul and just com- completely screw
screw you because if that happens then you know the other team's going to get a chance you already burned some of the time off the clock so i get why indiana didn't foul and when there wasn't anybody there so yeah and also he lebron caught the ball on the move young was not really close enough to foul him immediately true and and he lebron was able to make a move going to his left and the design of the play was excellent so that there wasn't someone else there there was still it was almost that they you couldn't double because there was too much time left right because uh lebron had enough time to make a pass potentially and joseph was guarding corver that was the nearest guy and it really wouldn't have been realistic for him to come over on lebron and lebron just an incredible shot only his second made jump shot of the game uh, on 14 attempt or 14 make yeah i was actually that was one of the stats i was sitting on in this because i just found this so fascinating so lebron he only took two shots outside the paint in this entire game they were also his only two made shots in the fourth quarter yeah maybe you what you could say is and that is incredible he also was 15 of 15 from the line i'd be hard pressed to remember the last time lebron shot that many free throws in a game and didn't miss one um now maybe what you should say is it's so obvious it's going to lebron that you should just double team him and not let the ball get inbounds to him let anybody else beat you except lebron but there was enough time left again that they could have just gotten it right back to the inbounder with three seconds left and the inbounder was jeff green so you know maybe you should go ahead and double team there but that's a lot to ask on the fly to figure that out but especially in that situation i think it probably you got to do something to get the ball out of his hands at, at that point whether it's just whoever the closest guy is goes and doubles or the the guy guarding the inbounder just basically like stands there and tries to prevent the ball from going into lebron or whatever it is um and just say hey you know what if they throw it back to the inbounder someone just sprint to the rim and try and contest him there or jeff green will give you an open shot because it's just and lebron just has such an amazing record and of course it was very reminiscent just about the exact same spot on the floor though i thought this was a more difficult shot of his shot from game two of the 2009 eastern conference finals against the magic Cavs went on to lose that series but now of course they lead three games to two and anything we need to discuss about this series going into game six on friday night well i think you knew that when you mentioned that in passing that i was going to go on to basketball reference this was the first time in lebron james illustrious career that he has taken 15 or more free throws and made all of them okay i mean and they needed every single one of those obviously then they ended up uh 26 out of 27 from the line only 21 out of 27 from the line for indiana and again it seemed like indiana had just so many missed chances it it, i mean i don't want to say like indiana is clearly the better team here but it's just you know lebron is putting up these incredible games and this is another one 44 points that that other game where he had the the 49 i mean these are the herculean efforts that are required and they're barely winning these games i mean they've got jose calderon at the floor at the end of these games jose calderon was basically replacement level last year like i was saying that the warriors like shouldn't even sign him and they should keep briante weber instead calderon actually you know has hit some shots in this series but this guy's playing in crunch time for the Cavs. this is not a good cleveland team they are it is just an absolute struggle for them and some of the pieces that they maybe could be getting out of more out of like clarkson or hood i mean they have no offensive system so you know hood's not going to get some of the shots that he got in utah and uh, clarkson doesn't really have enough free reign to kind of go off he had that big first half the other day but that's really all he's done in this series um jr smith just can't hit a shot other than you know a 75 foot fading three-pointer at the end of a quarter it's basically just like corver and lebron even love is just incredibly limited right now i don't know how did, much of it is that did hand. we ever even say lebron's line for this game because we might as well have it if we have yeah it. 44 points 10 rebounds eight assists five turnovers 14 to 24 15 to 15 from the line i think i think we did it piecemeal but it does need to all just be repeated at one pretty pretty incredible uh little 
little more efficient than Russell Westbrook's 45 point performance when it, he uh, did it on 39 field goal attempts. And for the series, LeBron is averaging 35 points, 11 and a half rebounds, and eight assists on 55% shooting and 83% from the free throw line on 11.5 free throws a game. And for the Pacers, I mean, Victor Oladipo, like, I don't think he's getting terrible shots. I think he was forcing it to the rim a little bit. His finishing has improved a lot, but in this one, didn't look as good. His overall shooting performance was one out of seven from three. I mean, I thought he got pretty decent looks on those, but I mean, the real problem, and he should have been two out of six at the rim because that was a goaltend at the end, uh, was one out of six at the rim. And it did, I mean, I, I think I, for Pacers fans who are really going to feel aggrieved about this, I mean, number one, the, the out-of-bounds call was missed at the other end that deprived Cleveland of a chance. And then number two, LeBron hit a three anyway. So even if Oladipo makes that two, I don't think that the Pacers would have been in an appreciably different defense up two because a two can tie you. Maybe you're a little bit more concerned about the three because that's the only way you're going to lose. But still, I mean, I, I don't think there's a way that they could have stopped that LeBron three. So uh, if he makes a two, I think you're you're feeling a little bit more aggrieved. But the fact that he hit a three, I think it, it's harder to say that the refs cost us the game, especially when they blew a call in your favor and not 30 seconds for. And part of what's so bizarre about this series, you talked about the Herculean efforts it has taken for LeBron, is that Indiana, it feels like they leave so much out there, and yet they're they're still either so close or, or winning a lot of these games. And this one, transition, I think they left a lot to be desired. A crazy stat from this that I think reflects, you know, if I could put one thing in from Nate McMillan, it would be this. Indiana in this game, 1.6 points per play when they were in transition, point eight three points per play in the half court well and another thing that they will absolutely ruin this game is 15 out of 27 at the rim only 56 percent against one of the worst rim protecting teams that we've seen in the playoffs in years and granted with lebron playing a little harder that became more difficult i thought he made some big plays protecting the rim particularly in the first half actually uh but they're gonna rue that as well old depot will think about a lot of shots that he had too that he's been making all season but has not really made in the last three games of this series something else i wanted to say because this could end up coming in in game six darren collison was awful in this game he didn't miss as many shots as oladipo but collison didn't attack defensively he wasn't really bringing as much and it was completely justified that Corey joseph played over him late yeah joseph has been awesome defensively he's one of the best in the league as a defensive point guard he's really the only guy who could stick with corver i thought that corver really was able to beat oladipo and that love would do a really nice job of screening his own man once oladipo was beat get Corver uh, some open threes but Joseph was able to stop Corver uh, I, I thought he was really important there but Collison I mean he's got to be the secondary scorer they don't have anyone else to do that and he's turning down three-pointers only one three-point attempt he had so many chances I thought to take spot up threes he's getting Kevin Love on a switch he's just got to be aggressive he's got to go crossover get to a good mid-range jumper against Kevin Love like the, with how terrible the offenses have been in this series although they actually were better in this game it was just an incredibly slow pace but that's a good shot he needs to just be aggressive and shoot that one um anything else you want to say here before we uh, talk a little raps whiz no I, I think that's enough indiana i'm not sure considering they're a relatively young team if they're going to be haunted by losing this series but they certainly have had the chances to win it yeah if they end do, up losing do you expect, which I them, expect to win them to win game six i do not i mean well I, I i will say this i'd be shocked if it's not close i mean every game in the series has been close yeah. except the one that indiana well, blew out right yeah I, I i think that's fair but also i'd be i i wouldn't be surprised really by any outcome in this series these two teams have been very uneven within each game so i could see i could see it being a blowout but i don't expect that you're right i expect it to be a close game too it's been a very it's been a very interest 
consistently interesting series, even if it hasn't been beautiful the whole time. And I've enjoyed it a lot. A less interesting series has been Toronto and Washington, in particular because I just feel like Washington can't score on Toronto in the half court, and they can score on them in the full court. This game, Washington, fifth percentile in half court points per place, 72.6 offensive rating in the half court, but they added 13.9 points more than expected to their ledger in transition almost and ran 47 percent of the time off live rebounds that's all john wall uh but they beal wall these guys are not very good half court creators in the washington games they did a little bit better with uh, that wall and gortat pick and roll and finding gortat getting him involved but generally as long as toronto has gotten back they've been able to stop the wizards uh, pretty well and in this game the wizards only managed 98 points uh, on 97 possessions and in particular they struggled in the fourth quarter when they were kept out of transition they looked a little tired there were a lot of stoppages toronto was scoring they were getting the foul line and so they only put up 20 points in that quarter but there it was like 27 to 15 during the competitive portion um and toronto actually ended up going up by 13 late although it was much much closer than that the other thing i'll say from toronto's perspective is part of why i remained skeptical about their playoff chances was demar Derozan and cal lowry i thought that they would not necessarily produce in the playoffs they haven't proven that yet and DeRozan pretty nasty game plus 15 32 points 12 to 24 from the field he hit three of four from three and while I thought Washington continued to do a pretty decent job of running the reps off the three-point line Lowry and DeRozan were able to create enough of their own three-point chances they had six of their uh 11 three-point makes and through most of the game uh had most of had uh you know a large percentage of those three-point makes then a few other Raptors made some as the game went on Wright was two of two he was awesome in this game by the way he had huge steals in the fourth who um what stuck out to you yeah, about yeah, a lot of a lot of big plays yeah. yeah he he had so delon wright had a kind of a 5 run at one point as the, i think it was went from a one point lead to a six point lead during that time wright made a three and got a an alley-oop layup off a nice pass by derozan in transition but for me in the first half i think one of the big stories was just derozan going off and being relatively efficient about it 20 points on 13 shots yeah. 15 shooting possessions because he was four of four from the line and in that first half Lowry and DeRozan had five of the Raptors 10 assists now 10 assists on 18 made baskets yeah I mean that's that's you're you're okay with that just because they were getting some of it done from the line but it really was those guys delivering and the support players being support players and along those lines this was not the best game for Serge Ibaka and OG Ananobi Ananobi looks like he tweaked his ankle late in the first half I was encouraged that he did play in the second half though he did not figure significantly into the ending of the game yeah and Ibaka he only played 23 minutes he has not been able to get it going offensively since the first two games that when i think he had over 20 points in both of those instead it was a closing lineup of wright lowry derozan valanchunas and cj miles so they really went to an offensive group down the end with miles at the four and i thought that that opened things up for them offensively the pressure for Wright really was pretty good and washington was not able to take advantage uh because they don't have that wing player right i mean they have some of the same weaknesses of like portland and new orleans for instance where they don't have someone who's going to just attack hard in the post off the dribble from the wing Otto porter is not that player even marquee force they went back to him and he wasn't really able to do much uh rather than Ubre. i think that's part of why they went there was because it was they were going with Ubre and porter at the forward nonetheless uh, washington had their chances john wall played 44 minutes i really think they got to find a way to get him some more rest especially they have capable backups the raps bench without van vliet has, has not been anywhere close to what it's been they've had to play their starters much more uh 
but not nothing crazy still 38 39 minutes and i think that made the difference wall just he gets tired down the end of these games and they're not gonna they can't score unless wall is at 100 maybe the home crowd can push him up in game six but i also thought that valanchunas was really good down the end for the raptors finishing inside he had a nice play on beal late where he rotated over forced him into a pull-up and then still was able to get back and box out gortad and rebound oh i thought you were going to talk about the steal he got because he ripped up i think that was was john wall and got one of the steals which ended up that was the one that led to a derozan dunk i believe yeah that one was awesome as well we didn't expect that wall got ripped up a couple times right in a row there leading to fast break buckets there's another one that wright had where wall tried to chase him down and wright is just such good finisher he just wrong footed and went to the other side of the rim no chance to block it that was really impressive i just love wright as a finisher oh one other thing i wanted to mention in this game it's becoming a broken record but damn it i'm gonna keep making this point because it's important to me remember how the wizards did so well surprisingly well with sataransky in place of john wall sataransky only played four minutes in this game ty lawson played 14 and scott brooks is still kind of trying to make you know they're doing these wall ty lawson minutes together partially because they just don't have they don't have that other kind of guard player but i think they just need to trust sataransky a little bit more because giving john wall 40 minutes or 38 i would i I would be targeting 38 if i were scott brooks i think that makes walls 38 minutes meaningfully better and sataransky can hold the fort down he did it for a month yeah and even lawson you know was plus one of those you did mention that he played some minutes together with wall also interesting also that mike scott only 14 minutes in this one i mean he's still with them being unable to score in the half court you know i'd like to see him get a little bit more of a look playing at the four you know it was Ubre and it was morris who again did very little six points two of eight uh, Ubre three of 11 one of seven from three although he did get to the foul line for seven to seven so mike scott you know i don't think that the raps have really been able to hurt him that much uh defensively and they can't score in the half court against this team now i I will say i probably expect the wizards to be slight favorites in this game six it wouldn't shock me if the reps finally take care of business and they showed impressive mental fortitude in this one i mean they were down 86 82 with under nine minutes to go in this game and then they went on a big run to clinch it mostly fueled by their defense and bradley beal also just had some pretty good looks that he eh, may i would say okay looks mostly he had one big three that he missed that could have cut it to three with about two and a half minutes left but he he really was not able to create the offense either and, and just you know john wall and brad beal are not elite creators in the half court they're solid they can run it down your throat but when it breaks down john wall is gonna get to an elbow jumper off a switch or off a conservative pick and roll coverage and beal is gonna get a pull up too that's probably contested if he runs a pick and roll and those just are not that great of shots yeah i mean doesn't it just feel like this is gonna go seven anyway though oh yeah well that's why i picked them uh yeah i should wipe that smug tone uh, out of my voice because the rest <laughs> my picks have certainly sucked <laughs> well one that you got right we both got it exactly right one of the few exactas on the board the houston rockets even though this game was the and this whole series i mean was closer than expected minnesota actually led by four points at halftime then houston again just went on this huge run in the third quarter 30 to 15 so we both picked rockets in five the rockets won in five so we can do a very faint celebration because we got this one right yeah is that the only one we're gonna i guess it still remains to be seen i I got a couple right yeah i got warriors in five correct yeah i might get i might get sell i i have like i think i could get five exactly right still yeah no you could get celtics that's probably trending your way jazz in six i think you had to mm-hmm. um i think i was closer on sixers miami you had that one going seven right i did yeah um you had it in six i believe yes, that that is right we'll go through we'll go through all that later on we still haven't figured out a scoring system but we 
will figure out something yeah all right I, I, well uh we should discuss that i mean it, it's so funny because once we're done we're spending like you know eight hours a day talking about basketball so it's like once that's over it's like you know what maybe there's someone else in our lives that we might want to have a conversation with at some point yeah but let's I, i'll just talk briefly about this game and then i'll i'll plug my piece because so i can remember to plug it myself uh i i thought that early on you know paul and harden just weren't really getting anything and that is not something that you would ever expect to hold harden ended up with 24 points 8 of 11 from the field only four free throws and those and chris paul didn't get any free throws but another nice game i mean maybe the biggest surprise of this series other than carl anthony towns and this kind of ties in not really finding himself until this game where i thought he played better was clink capella 26 points 15 rebounds 12 of 14 from the field two of four from the line four offensive rebounds and he just had a wonderful series yeah that was outstanding and he was really able to benefit as time went on i mean number one i thought his defense on carl anthony towns was excellent although when it was a one-on-one matchup certainly there was plenty of switching on towns the other thing though was that they're playing the pick and roll two on two as much as they could although they still gave up plenty of threes in the series and carl anthony towns is not exactly your best two on two big pick and roll defender and so they're able to get a lot for capella and when capella gets a lot of shots he gets a lot of points because he is an extremely efficient finisher uh good note here from jonathan fagan and it showed just how little pressure the wolves defense was able to put on houston the rockets despite uh, the fact that there were some relatively high possession games in this series they only had 42 turnovers in the series so under 10 per game that's just two more than the fewest in nba history in a five game series and especially with paul harden i mean those guys do not turn the ball over very often on a per possession basis and houston finally got the three ball going especially in the second half tucker was five of seven Ariza was four of seven when guys like that are hitting threes this team is completely unguardable uh they finished 41 percent 18 to 44 that's a, their usual preposterous number of attempts wolves 19 three-point attempts they did make nine of them uh and it ended up being for houston just offensive domination in the second half 134 offensive rating on only 90 possessions they had 122 points so i mean playing really slowly and yet able to put up this incredible efficiency and minnesota finally had an efficient offensive game of their own i guess they had one game three two 114 offensive rating and they lost by 18 nonetheless and uh i am uh i'm ready to see the minnesota timberwolves go home i mean just their utter lack of creativity in being able to attack this houston switching defense to me is a problem also noteworthy in this game jimmy butler did not play in the fourth quarter due to knee soreness in his surgically repaired knee which oh you know maybe that's interesting maybe you know you shouldn't play him when you're down 30 to start the fourth quarter uh the entire fourth quarter 38 minutes of the previous game and then maybe you won't have knee soreness the next day or two days later and remember this this was an 11 point game going into the fourth quarter it was not over though i think you and i both thought it was not going to go minnesota's way and i mean jimmy butler sat in the all-star game because he, he needed the rest and so to to go in that direction i mean with thibodeau it's it's extremely concerning i still fully expect thibodeau to be the coach of the bulls next year and and to be the president i mean this is a very different situation the, the than wolves, Stan Van Gundy I think, because I think you mean the wolves the, the, he is not oh, I, he is I, not the coach of the bulls any longer or no. or the president oh i i, I wish i would have fumbled that into timber bulls which is actually what i kind of wanted to do but i didn't <laughs> that's that's how i made the mistake no. Sean, but, Sean Hyken would have managed to, to recover that but uh, oh of course he would have uh, yeah and so you have all that and where i was going with that why i lost my train of thought was because this is i i had already written it but a lot of this stuff in this game tied in with it i the first of my off-season previews for the athletic i'm writing in depth you know big storylines things to watch all the you know the little 
little nuances also like pick picks and all that all that sort of stuff is in there and Minnesota is in this such a strange place because they had I don't want to go into their whole offseason thing but this is just kind of the crux of what I talked about is they had such a tumultuous and active 2017 offseason that this one is going to look tame by comparison and I don't exactly know if Minnesota fans are feeling good about what happened this season I mean they made the playoffs ended this 14 year playoff drought which is massive or if it's like hey you know we we did all this stuff and we and we only got one game in the playoffs we ended up being the eighth seed but I think we're going to see a overwhelm an overwhelmingly similar team next year and that's kind of what the crux of it is but I talked about what what they can improve as well well yeah but when Tom Thibodeau goes back and really assesses his philosophy and and what went wrong in this season you know I, I'm sure they're going to come back with a radically different strategic approach so I, I expect big things for them next year 35 minute workloads for everybody <sighs> yeah uh at least you know what's nice at least is that like the bucks have at least started peeing in their series you know like i at least i don't yeah. feel i mean those are sort of the two teams of utter frustration this year and while the bucks have certainly still done some frustrating things at least they've been defending they've gone to a, a, a more modern approach so we do have some news to get to here real quickly mike budenholzer as seemed quite possible after he had already been linked to the sun's job although it was said that he uh, they were not able to come to an agreement because i guess robert sarver was not willing to pay him anywhere close to what he was making he's said to be interested in the knicks with that to be his top choice we'll see if that's actually true if say the bucks job or the blazers job were to come open but he now will not return as coach of the atlanta hawks he had two years and, and about 14 million uh mark stein said yesterday on the show that he had heard it was even more than that so i'm not sure if this agreement is anything like a buyout from atlanta you know maybe there is and then there's not much of an offset or maybe they agreed to let him out of it with the idea that there would be an offset we'll probably never find out exactly what that financial offset is but Budenholzer is now a coaching free agent I would say that of all the coaches available I would probably put him at the top of the list especially with the improvement he's been able to engender in young players very good offensive mind he's coached very good offenses and defenses in his career so far and uh now if I have to give him any personnel power I'm running away like my pants are on fire but if he'll just come in as a coach I would be very very interested in him I think uh, and who else is there anyone else on the market that you would be more interested in than him right now Terry Stotts isn't on the market at the moment I like but, but I, I like Bud to... better than Stotts personally yeah we, we discussed this a little bit on the Twitter show I, I just like Stotts's offensive like the, the way that he approaches big men who can shoot I think could be very good for Porzingis and I like I think the defensive approach that Stotts has used this year would be would be good with them but again I, I like Budenholzer a lot I think Budenholzer's done especially when he's had competitive teams on the floor has done a very very good job with the Hawks and their young player development certainly you know like the way that those guys have, have looked better over time we didn't really get to see it much with their young perimeter players this year because Bembry in particular just missed so much time but overall they've done that nice job and it would be fun I'm trying to think of the last time this happened to have a coach and a former protege a former assistant coaching in the same city on the two different teams would be kind of fun with Kenny Atkinson doing a good job in Brooklyn still yeah and we'll see what happens of course you know with this the Bucks here if they can make it to the next round they are certainly massive underdogs to do that now but you know I could still see them winning in Boston they've been close there a couple of times in the series they obviously have to win tomorrow night but I I think that they're pretty good favors to do that the way they played in the two games in Milwaukee already so that's gonna be fascinating in other news this college basketball report came out today I haven't read a summary of it yet but certainly the Twitter summaries that I've read were not particularly complimentary from an NBA standpoint although they did 
asked the NBA to eliminate the one and done rule. The NBA and the NBA PA have had conversations on eliminating the one and done rule. Brian Windhorst basically saying, yes, that's going to be done. Uh, Woj saying this uh, as well, but that the minimum age requirement won't go any sooner than the 2020 draft, which makes sense because you've already got players who were being the 2019 draft who've already committed to college and stuff. And also before the NBA PA's executive committee meets in June, it would be impossible to make any kind of a change to the CBA, a collective bargaining agreement. And But Windhorse said, said on TV today that the one and done rule is going to be gone. The NBA is going to try to take charge at youth basketball, get in a more productive way than just, hey, we're going to show up to your AAU tournament, apparently, so that teams can make informed decision on these high school players, whether, you know, that means you have to, you could be drafted, but you have to be in the G League for a year or, you know, who knows what kind of a form this is going to take, what kind of the options are going to be. But I think this this makes more sense to me. It makes our jobs a little harder because we don't have that college game tape now to evaluate guys before the draft. It makes everyone's jobs a little harder, but they're trying to find a way for the NBA to be involved in youth basketball that's more productive than it was in the first one and done era. And, and I certainly, whatever they do will make a lot more sense than players going to college. Although I still suspect that players will do that to some degree. Um, and, they did before. Yeah. And, and I think more importantly than any sort of, I, I agree with you that it will be harder for us, but from an equitability standpoint, I think this is extremely important. And I'm a pragmatist in a lot of different ways, but one of the easiest arguments that I've ever had to make with this is, would you give up that first year of LeBron or that first year of Kobe for any good reason? I mean, though there are certain players who deserve to make that jump, who are ready to make that jump. And the NBA is a better place for nurturing even talented players who are not ready to make that jump than colleges. You know, like, let's say Michael Porter's back injury had happened exactly the same thing occurred and he was on an NBA team not saying anything against the University of Missouri medical team I know absolutely nothing about them but when you consider the investment involved in an NBA player you know you have them on a four-year contract if he would have been drafted high Michael Porter certainly would have been they have all of the incentives to do right by these players and I the book Boys Among Men which is fabulous by Jonathan Abrams which if you haven't read it if they change the age limit it's mandatory reading it is anyway but the NBA is going to be so much better about handling this now because the league is just more professional than it was 20 years ago 15 years ago yeah and i think actually even that some of the kids coming into the league are a little bit more professional and polished than they were years ago uh and everyone just kind of knows how to do this better and i think even if you look back at the history of high schoolers from 95 to 05 being in the draft and those guys who went in i mean there's selection bias there because they were good enough to go to the nba in the first place but most of the guys who were amazing talents ended up really fulfilling their nba destiny and being awesome and you know especially because guys are going to college for one year like this and it's just kind of you know they're just not learning how to play nba basketball you you have another year of learning how to play nba basketball you practice all your threes from the three-point line i mean it's just there's so much more that you can do to you learn nba defense you're not playing in a two-three zone at syracuse or something or you know just desperately trying to stay out of foul trouble with five fouls and it's uh it's going to be much better here a couple other things I, I will take this one actually one other thing i will take this one because uh well of your actually policy. this this isn't about this isn't about the recovery as much so i'm free to talk about this but you can take the lead all right woge said on tv basically that the relationship with Kawhi leonard is broken and there needs to be a meeting which mike wright also reported would be a priority to happen relatively soon uh, obviously with greg popovich and the tra- tragic loss of his wife that may not be imminent here but that there needs to be more 
communication uh before the spurs feel like they can make that designated player veteran extension but really to me what everyone again is not focusing on enough is is this guy actually healthy is he gonna have a recurrence of this quadriceps tendinopathy issue he has a team of doctors that apparently has not cleared him unless that's just some kind of an obfuscation because he didn't want to go back to the team when he's proves that he's healthy and the spurs believes he's healthy they seemed already but they apparently leonard and it seemed disagree then a lot of these conversations can start uh another interesting detail though from right was that uh peter holt and his wife are in the midst of a divorce and that that could mean that it would be a difficult sell for them to make this big commitment to Kawhi. maybe that sounds like almost if they're in the midst of a divorce that perhaps the divorce proceedings could result in them having to sell the team that's i'm just reading between the lines of right story here i don't know that that's true but if that's the case that adds another wrinkle here as well do you want to make this risky investment for a team that could potentially be sold or just simply because it's in the midst of a divorce could just be paralyzed and maybe you know they're an acrimonious divorce could just mean that hey i'm you want to do this i'm not letting you do that you know it could just be even be something like that so uh that throws yet another wrinkle into this even if they do want to make the offer of the designated player veteran extension so much remains to be seen here with Kawhi. uh my prediction is still that it's all going to get worked out but i would uh wouldn't shock me if it went the other way it wouldn't shock me either there's a lot of pressure on on different elements of this and you could just think of when they'll when they'll have the opportunity to, to kind of sync it up and the the parallel here might even be Kyrie, where it's just if they don't get to a resolution by x date like will will they be comfortable going into this season with Kawhi leonard not being on a new contract and to get the numbers out there this is i just did this very quickly if the cap for 20 for 2019 20 because that's the year the extension would kick in if the cap that year was 108 million which is the current estimate that Kawhi leonard designated vendor extension would be adding five years and 219 million to his salary to 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 the books it would be the largest contract in nba history in terms of new money there might be some kind of finagling on all that because of the years added and all that kind of stuff but five years 219 million would be jaw-dropping all right well that'll end a jaw-dropping night of nba action same programming as next or as last week by the way this week with only one game tomorrow we're gonna wait and then friday night we'll wrap up all the games uh, on friday and also uh, that thursday game we got pretty good listenership from doing it that way so i think we'll stick with that at least for this week and then we'll assess of course as we next week comes into view and we know what timing is going to look like thanks so much for listening oh you got something Uh, there sorry i was going to quickly promo my piece again uh the athletic the minnesota timberwolves offseason preview it's it it goes into a lot of different directions and also I, i i think i mentioned this before but i did a piece on the nine teams that i think are most likely to use cap space some of which are are relevant right now because they're getting knocked out of the playoffs but going to be doing an absolute bet ton of writing for the athletic some of which will get into patreon and danny story time but a lot of it because we're doing off-season previews for dunked on will largely stay in that place all right we'll talk to y'all friday night till then